0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. I'm going to get us started. I know we'll have more as time goes on, but I want to maximize our time with the speaker. Thank you all very much for being here. Happy New Year. I think this is, I know, this is the first form of the New Year, so thank you very much for being here. And I have the pleasure this morning of introducing and welcoming to St. John's an old friend of mine, Jill Doherty, who is no stranger to any of us. Uh, Jill is one of the nation's foremost experts on Russia. She's currently an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Center for Eurasian, Russian, and East European Studies. She's also a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and a member of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute Advisory Council. So she's a very busy woman. She's also just finishing up a book and perhaps Jill will tell us a little about that. She's best known of course, from her time at CNN for many years. She was the Moscow bureau chief among other things. She held that position for more than a decade. She continues to appear on CNN, as we all know, frequently to comment on Russia's brutal and unjust invasion of Ukraine, which, of course, will be the subject of her talk today. With that, please join me in welcoming Jill Dorey. Thank you, Jill.
1: Thank you very much, Clark. Uh, that you're very kind. <laughs> I don't. I don't know if anybody is an expert on Russia, but. Um, Anyway, some of us try. And that book, where I'll tell you. Um, I, started, I started thinking about the book many, many years ago, because I've actually had a, a long career, beginning in high school, uh, studying the Russian language. And then as time went on, I thought, I really you know, should write about these experiences, and then about Putin, because I covered him for, you know, from the beginning, before, when he was a prime minister. And then and also I was an exchange student in Leningrad at Leningrad State University when Vladimir Putin was a budding KGB agent and was studying law at Leningrad State University. Of course I never met him but <laughs> I think he was informing at that period. But anyway, it is, you know, it's a complex complex subject and I do I did prepare at least an outline of how I'd, what I'd like to talk about over the next 25, 30 minutes at the most, and then I'd really be interested in your questions because you know this is a very fluid situation in Ukraine, and I think um, you know I think back on my life in this field, which has really gone back to high school and Sputnik and the space race and all of that up to today. And there have been moments, like the end of the Cold War, the fall of the Berlin Wall, um, uh, uh, the beginning of modern Russia, you know, 1991, the coup, Gorbachev. This moment, this war, to me, brings so many strains together in this history. And to me, it's an absolute turning point. I mean, what is happening on many levels? You know, number one, it is a war, and it's a brutal war. Oh, you know, look online today. Open any newspaper, and you will see the pictures of the bombing that the Russians has carried out, killing, I don't know, it was about 30, I think, when I looked the last time, injuring so many others. And uh, it's, it's a very brutal war. Then you have, why is this war going on? So you have the kind of you know, historical, geopolitical background behind that then you have what is going to happen to ukraine you know ukraine is a country will it exist some people don't want it russians some russians certainly putin do not want russia uh, ukraine to exist in the future then you have the uh reaction or what's happening i should say the influence of the war on russia itself so there are a lot of different aspects to this and I can't get into all of them, but I'll just give a little bit of kind of my um, personal recent uh, history um, and what I've been doing with Russia just this past year, and then kind of back up, because what I want to talk about, since we are in a church, I would like to talk about the moral aspects of this war, which um, are you know morality, but also ideology, and how you justify a war and what, and what that thinking is. It's having really deep ramifications in many, many different areas. So I'll just start with um, back, I, d- I left uh, CNN in 2014 and did a number of uh, fellowships and studied, you know, did some research, kind of went down the path of looking at propaganda. Which I'd find endlessly fascinating, and then um, CNN kept working or kept me on doing a variety of different things. One of which would be whenever there was breaking news in Russia, they would send me back for you know a month or two, and I would fill in and provide um, context and uh, maybe some clarity on what was happening. At least my my opinion on what was happening. So. When the war, when the CNN, and all you had to do was listen to the US government, US government back at the end of the year, actually even going back into 2021, uh, was watching Russia. And in the spring, they, uh, the US government was watching Russia, and they were moving troops closer to the border, and equipment, and field hospitals, and things that you would put in place if you were going to invade. And so, CNN obviously is watching this very carefully, and they said, can you go to Moscow? And of course I said, I'll go, you know, whenever. And then there's kind of radio silence, and then all of a sudden they say, can you go tomorrow? So, (laughs) as usual. So I I went in, in February, February 16th, and the war began on the 24th. So I was there at the very beginning, and watching this, uh, literally unfold, kind of like Kabuki theater on TV, because a lot of it is there is a high element of propaganda in this. So the war was being played out on TV screens, and it was also kind of I remember um, these kind of odd things like on the 21st, Putin gave a speech. And uh, it was on TV, and it was a rambling, very, very long and kind of angry speech about why Ukraine isn't a country and uh, why it actually is part of Russia and its culture is actually kind of fake because the language isn't real. There's no such thing as Ukrainian language and all of this stuff. This is all in quotes, obviously. And so as I watched it, there was this one moment, I'll just give you a little background. I'm watching TV and then I have to jump up and do reports. So I'm watching Putin and I thought, it went on for so long, I memorized the picture. And he had kind of a maroon tie and kind of a um, darker suit and flags in the back and his desk and phones. Like in the old Soviet days, they had a bunch of different phones and they'd pick them up. You yeah. know, defense ministry, Foreign ministry. You know. And I, so I memorized this picture. And he delivers the speech. And a couple of days, or maybe a day later, I'm looking at this video on TV, and I thought it was live. And then I said to one of the producers, wait a minute, that's is that live? He's saying something else. And we both said, oh, maybe we ought to listen. Because <laughs> I thought it was recorded. No, it was recorded, but... It was delivered or they produced they presented it as if it were live. So there was a lot of stuff going on, even people noting the time on Putin's watch. Things had been recorded in advance, and they were saying live, but actually had been recorded twelve hours or you know twenty-four hours earlier. So this feeling of like, Is this really real? You know, when did you say this? Who is this? And they, they had um these are, I know, kind of impressionistic things, but I think they're important. They had a vote. One of the triggers for invading was to recognize two people's republics, self-proclaimed, uh, in the eastern part of Ukraine, Donetsk and Lugansk, Luhansk, and so um, when they they said, Oh, they have been attacked so brutally by the Ukrainians for so many years they're declaring independence. And if they are independent, now they want to join Russia. A classic Soviet approach. you know people demand unity with Soviet Union. We will go in and rescue them. It's as old as a hill. So they were playing this card. and so as he's speaking, you know, all of these, uh, I thought, oh, well, that's interesting. The leaders of Donetsk and Lugansk, all of a sudden, bam, they're in Moscow. Of course they'd been brought in, Yeah, you know, a day before. Everything's recorded. It, it was a very strange, fake time, type of feeling. But the purpose of that was it was choreographed in a propaganda way. But it was not choreographed militarily because very few people in the power structure, sorry, this kind of bounces a little bit, uh, knew about the war. Foreign ministry had to have known, but they were denying every day. No, there is no way that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. That's crazy. You people, you have um, all of these terrible ideas about Russia. We would never invade. We're the people who are invaded, you know? So that was one. But militarily, Putin, decided to be the general. And I think this, and you've probably heard this, but I absolutely believe that one of the reasons they are doing so poorly is because Putin decided that he would run the show and directed everything and thought that it would be a cakewalk into Kiev, and it wasn't. And now you have this odd fighting. It's Maybe you have some questions about it, but um, the switching of his generals, the third time, technically, that he's had a new head of his military operation. And I think it's really, you know, it's not working. Bring in another guy. Set him up to be blamed if things go wrong. And Putin goes on as the as the savior. So there, there was, you know, there was a, a lot of that. So I'd say if you look at, um, the, you know, the main conclusions that I took at that point. This would be now February 24th is when the tanks began rolling and they moved in. You had um, Putin playing the role of the general, I think, is number one. Number two, he's not a good general, <laughs> you know. He's, he's, an, he's an intelligence agent, you know, he was in the KGB. He does it. He's not a military man. So saying where the tanks were going to go and using foot soldiers and all of that, um, it didn't work. And it's still not working. They've improved, but it's still not working. And then I think that what I could see, at the same time I was um, doing those live shots, I was talking with my friends who were Russians. I actually do have a lot of affection for Russia. Even now, I mean, my Russian friends, and Russia as a culture, but I met with one, I'll give you one example, um, well, I'll give you two. I called up this one friend who worked at that time in Russian independent TV. It's called TV Rain, TV Dorsht. And I said, hey, let's have coffee. I'm in town. And he said, oh yeah, great, okay, let's do it Wednesday. So. On Monday or Tuesday, I get a a little cryptic text from my friend, and he said, and he's a journalist, right? He said, Jill, sorry, um, my family and I are going on vacation, so I I can't meet you for coffee. And I thought, no, you know, you don't go on vacation when the war is starting. And what he was doing, I later found out. I will tell you, I answered, immediately went into my old kind of Soviet approach, which is, don't say anything, don't say anything on the phone, don't compromise him, keep it short, don't text, just leave it. And later I found out, he had fled to Georgia. Uh, They wouldn't let him in there. Then he went to Israel, he was allowed, he is Jewish, he went to Israel. Allowed to go there. And then he ended up, um, he's in Europe now, I'm not quite sure, Amsterdam, I think. But so he had fled. And then another person whom I know, a woman, I said, also, let's have coffee. So we go to this theater. It's really cinematic. Go to this theater, and there's a cafe in the theater. And I knew she was probably going to want to leave too. So we had this Soviet. Conversation, like it saying nothing but saying everything, and and I said, so what what are you gonna, what are your plans? What are you going to do? And she said, oh, I have plan A, B, and C, and I said, oh, great, okay, well, I hope that works out. And in the, you know, if it were a normal conversation, I'd say, well, where are you going to go? <laughs> yeah. When are you going? But she couldn't say it because I am positive somebody. Followed me trotting up the street to the cafe from the bureau. There's no question. Now, they didn't learn anything, but it was, it immediately, like clockwork, felt like when I was an exchange student, 1969, I hate to say it so long ago, but it's true. It, it, you know, being followed as an idiotic 20 year old with no secrets. They expended money to follow stupid 20 year old exchange students, so they're gonna spend a little money to follow more important people. So anyway, um, I later found out that she had gone also to Georgia, but then she got out and went, ultimately now she's in Poland. So, uh, so many of my friends left. And at that point, since the beginning of the war, to now, it's an estimate, but I do believe that about a million people have left Russia for a variety of reasons. Some, because they're young IT people and they figure, you know, no job here. (laughs) They're gonna be cut off from everything, so they left. Then there are people who wanted to, to, uh, who who, um, were dragooned or almost, when they had the mobilization, into the military. Some of them fled. And then there are other people who just kind of gave up you know that that um, life is never going to be the same. I was telling Clark, um, in the midst of all of this, I was teaching my course. You know, the Putin generation that I invented, and I teach over at Georgetown. And um, you know, it's about young people who've known no leader other than Vladimir Putin. So I'm there, and I wasn't quite sure how I how long I would be in, in Moscow. So I said to the people at Georgetown, you know, can I teach online? Because obviously I can't come back. And they said, yeah, no problem. So I'm looking around the bureau and there were all these young interns, like volunteers, no one was paid, working with the journalists. And I said, do you have any friends that my students could talk with? And so they put me in touch with three people, two young women, one guy, young guy and uh, my students actually had totally open conversation with these young people as the war was beginning. It was an incredible experience. The two young women were fleeing. They hated it. They thought it was obscene. The war was obscene. They wanted to leave as soon as possible. The young man defended the war. His father was a diplomat and he said, you know, it's our land. They, you know, they're uh, controlled by Nazis, and we, yeah, you know, we do. We should go in. So it was an incredible thing. So anyway, um, I do want to get to the ideology part of it pretty quickly. But I had to leave on March sixth, as most everybody in the bureau had to leave, because all of a sudden they passed a law which you may have heard of, that you can't call the war a war. You can't quote anything but the Russian military. Uh, Otherwise, you could be arrested and you could serve 15 years in prison for propaganda, fake news. And the the word fake is now a Russian word, by the way. (laughs) Fake, fake, pronounced the same way. Um, No, uh, it's really. So, you know, that was kind of the reason we had to leave. I had to leave pretty quickly. I got out through Abu Dhabi. It was kind of crazy. But anyway, back we go. So, what I wanted before, because I know we only have like five, 10 minutes max, I wanted to talk about morality and ideology, which isn't talked about that much uh, either on TV or any other place. Academically, it is. But um, ideology is being used. To justify the war. And I just wanna, I don't wanna get into kind of like I'm giving a lecture, but in a way it is. Because if you remember the old Soviet Union, there was a very specific ideology Marxism, Leninism. You could find it in books, you know, chapter one, chapter two of worldwide domination by the capitalists and you know workers of the world unite you have nothing to lose but your chains and it was it was a very specific ideology that people studied it was considered scientific socialism so very very concrete so end of the soviet union modern russia now exists and people for the most part in the soviet union and especially in russia were very tired of ideology. It had been crammed down their throats for 70 years, and they wanted no more ideology. However, they needed, I think Yeltsin, the first president of independent modern Russia, decided that Russia needed a national idea. And that's a national idea, national idea. So he gets together all of the gray beards in Russia, Literally a commission, and he tasks them, gives them like a year or so to come up with a national idea. Now, if you think of the United States, ours would be what um, you know: all men are equal, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, uh, institutions at work, uh, human rights, all of that. So, what he was trying to do is say, what is modern Russia about? You know, what's our national idea? So, they met for a year. And they gave up. They literally <laughs> gave up. They had no national idea. And in my world, I really do think, and I don't think this is too airy-fairy. I really think it's true that when you don't have a concept of like who you are in the world, bad things happen. <laughs> you, can, you can have your ideas hijacked by people who will give you an ideology. So when, you know, Yeltsin was busy with having the country fall apart, and unfortunately, there was a lot on his plate, so he could not come up with a national idea. Enter Putin. Putin comes in, and he has, he takes, kind of like making soup, he takes a little dose of czarism. I'll call it that. Um, Ancient civilization, which it is, you know, a thousand-year history, Christendom, um, the czar's mighty land, largest land mass in the world, etc. So he takes czarism, and then he takes Soviet Union, even though it was, you know, the communists are now out. They, they, as Putin would definitely say, saved the world during World War II. And indeed, they did. I mean, 20, more than 20 million dead, and they uh, gave everything for the victory against the Nazis. Other people did too, other people did too, but I will, including my father, who was in the Pacific Theater, which most Russians have never heard of, but in any case, uh, I digress. So, um, he takes Soviet Union, and then the final thing, and you see this when Medvedev comes in as president for a little bit, Russia too, modern country, we can be, you know, modern and have the Internet and become a sophisticated, uh, you know, technical country, kind of like the Soviet Union, inventing things, putting people in space, et cetera. So it was kind of that was his little amalgam. But as it has developed, he's brought in deeper currents of thought, and some of them are really, I would say, dangerous kind of nationalistic things that existed and were percolating around the time of the Russian Revolution. So there's a lot of, you know, in Russia, there's a lot of philosophical thought. There always has been. Like, Russians are very philosophical. And they're always having debates about philosophy. So there are a lot of people, some of them I would say, extreme nationalists who also bring in... um, Racism, racism is a little hard because it's not like black, white racism, but it would be ethno-nationalism. And definitely white supremacy, you know, we, that's our word. But there is a feeling among many of these nationalists that aligns very much with white nationalism in the United States. So these currents have gotten stronger. And one that Clark and I were mentioning is religion. And if you look at Russia, former Soviet Union, definitely Russia, going back to Tsarist days, to define oneself as Russian was to be Russian Orthodox, right? Soviet Union falls apart, Uh, Stalin had brutally repressed the church, then during World War II allowed it to come back to a certain extent, to keep, you know, to kind of, pull the church into supporting the war against the Nazis. Putin is doing much the same thing. So that religious current of using the church, and I would say the church using Putin, um, I'm sad to say the Russian Orthodox Church is now, not the people in it necessarily, but the leadership is highly political. And the uh, Kidil, who's the head of the church, the patriarch, has actually said that for men who serve in the war, if they die, all their sins will be forgiven because it is a just war, and that he is totally embedded with Putin in the war. This has caused a terrible split in the Orthodox Church, as some of you, I'm sure, have heard. So um, that, that I think that's a big element and you see these quotes, I brought one, a couple, by Mr. Medvedev, once considered in this town, a liberal, you know, kind of Western person, now saying things like this. Um, Moscow is fighting crazy Nazi drug addicts in Ukraine, backed by Westerners who, he said, have saliva running down their t- chins from degeneracy. And then he said, um, the task of the fatherland is to stop the supreme ruler of hell, <laughs> uh, whatever name he uses, Satan, Lucifer, or Iblis, and that um, we should use all of our Russian weapons to send all of our enemies to fiery Gehenna. Now, I'm sure that you have probably heard some of this in, you know, from the Old Testament, but this is literally what you hear on Russian TV right now, that this is not just a war against NATO and the West, it's a war against Satan and the evil of the people in the West who are now morally degraded. And the, uh, they actually call Europe gayropa because it's everyone in the West is gay. And so it, it's really, it's amazing, every um, let's call them a social moral issue has been taken in and used in this fight against the West. So, to, you know, maybe um, to end because I do want to get some questions. I would just end that I think this has been this is so awful for Ukraine, which is being decimated again. Those pictures today are horrendous. But look at Ukraine. Look at Russia itself. This war is is splitting the country. I mean, parents are fighting children. Children usually, some, some support it. But a lot of the younger people don't support it or have questions about it. And they're being split off from their parents. They're, I, I definitely believe that Putin is damaging Russia by alienating all of these educated young people who could be contributing to Russia of the future who are all leaving anybody in his right mind every single one of my friends every single one of my friends is now gone from Russia and they're not all young kids it's really it's terrible so I think the long-term effect of this war is going to be really terrible uh, not only for Ukraine in every single way you know physically with the suffering but it is going to Um, ruin a lot of Russian culture, um, foreign policy, militarily, and every other way, and I think ultimately destabilize the country. And nobody knows what will happen with that, but I do think it's very, very bad for Russia. So why don't I stop here? Really glad to get some questions.
0: drive by there at night and
2: the place is completely dark. So there must not be a lot of talking going on between diplomats uh, Mm.
0: from Russia and our people nowadays, which is a sad uh, state of affairs. Fast forward maybe three years from now, assume that there's been a negotiated settlement of some type to the the conflict. Uh, What does that look like? What is the maybe one or two most likely scenarios in your view?
1: Wait, that, that really... No, you're not
2: prognostic. Yeah. You're and than any of us.
1: Well, I th- you know, one of the ideas, like I think the most common idea would be eventually Ukraine is going to have to settle for something because Putin won't. So let's take that scenario, which I don't necessarily agree with. Um, Zelensky has said, uh, we want all of our land back. That would include all of that Donbass region where the fighting is taking place, and it would also include Crimea, which Russia uh, illegally annexed in 2014. Um, So he denies that's gonna happen. Others would say, well, maybe Russia can can keep Crimea and you take back Donbass. So I think politically, For Zelensky, the president of Ukraine, it's going to be very difficult because the people of Ukraine do not want that. They've suffered enough, and to give that up would be politically impossible at this point. Or you could have, uh, let's say, Russia loses the war, which I think is possible militarily. Um, Putin will never want to admit that, but he might use it as a fig leaf that, you know, we kept this, we did that, and try to justify the war. So that would be another one, you know, that somehow, something, Putin is able to convince his own people that he won. But I don't know how he does that, I really don't. Economy being destroyed as we speak, 100,000, estimated 100,000, killed and injured among his soldiers killed and injured. So the estimates, you know, they're all over the map. But roughly 50,000 have died. That's a lot of people. Um, And then the third thing could be uh, domestically at home in Russia. People finally have had enough. Uh, Putin is perceived as weak. Somebody begins to try to take over power. And Russia begins to uh, undergo, well, maybe not fall apart. Some people actually believe it could begin to kind of disintegrate into different areas, and Putin falls, dies, is deposed, or whatever. But that, that could happen. I think it would be a very dangerous scenario. Um, all bets are off because they have nuclear weapons. We face that at the end of the Soviet Union. But I think those are maybe three, but I, I, I just feel... Putin is not going to give in, which does not, in my opinion, mean that the West has, has to give in to him. But I think in his mind, he cannot give up. So, where do we go? I don't know. Well, any other question? That was the hardest one.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: was there anything that we could have done to avert this war? Could anything I- have been done?
1: All right, Um, Russia would say, you know, remember way at the beginning of the war, before the beginning of the war, they delivered a list of demands to the West. And there was a bit of reporting on it, but, you know, it was kind of esoteric and detailed and everything. But um, the Russians would say, if you'd only listened to us then, and if you hadn't begun to pump weapons into Ukraine and all of this, and given us what we wanted. But what Russia wants is a zone of influence, at least at that point, and I I think still, maybe more, they want a zone of influence in the area of the former Soviet Union. And the zone of influence means that they can politically influence those countries, and, and economically, and every other way. And Ukraine is kind of the gem. It's the biggest country, you know, 40 million people, as big as France, Used to be the breadbasket, still is. It used to be the breadbasket of the Soviet Union. It's where a lot of the weapons for the Soviet Union were made. Missiles were made there. Uh, it had nuclear weapons. It's a very important country. So, you know, I think um, the, the West could not give Putin what he wanted. I mean, the whole debate at the end of the Soviet Union was how do you bring them into Europe? How do you help Russia? And I'm not trying to be Pollyannish, because there are a lot of people who wanted to you know, punish Russia. But how do you bring them into Europe and the rest of the world and make them a normal European country? Because they, they can't seem to be a normal European country. They want to be a superpower, as they were during the Cold War. And so this is, this is a problem. Their own image of themselves makes it very hard for them to work with others. They want to control the organizations that they're members of. So I don't know that the West could have done much of anything. And you realize, you know, um, Bill Burns, the you know, CIA, head of the CIA, went to Moscow and said, we know what you're doing. We know what you're doing. And it's gonna be bad for Ukraine, but it's gonna be very bad for Russia. And the response, this is, I have this from a person who was there. The response was, you know what? You guys have done this type of stuff for a long time. We're back, we've got an army, and we're gonna do whatever the hell we want. So like it or lump it. That literally was like, tough. We're back. And so that's the mentality. That's the mentality. So it's unfortunate. I say this with great regret. Uh, yes?
2: Uh, I know that the Russians are getting drones from Iran, but what is their relationship now politically, the Russians and the Iranians?
1: Well, you know, it's complicated because you still have uh, the Iran nuclear uh, agreement that Russia has supported, but I. I don't know. I think that seems to be kind of quiescent at this point. But Russia is looking for any friends that it has, that it can get. And Iran will supply drones. Now the Russians are talking about producing Iranian drones in Russia, because they're, I think, a little embarrassed that they had to import Ukrainian, uh, Iranian drones. But they also have their other friends in North Korea, because they're importing weapons from North Korea, I mean, how the mighty have fallen. It must be really galling to the Russian Foreign Ministry to realize you now that you know you could, that uh, Iran and North Korea are their friends. Now there are other countries that are kind of standing back. You know, uh, look at China and India have kind of a different approach. But even China is being very careful. You know, they're much more guarded in. Uh, supporting any type of action by Putin, rhetorically, yeah, they kind of play the game, but they're very smart, and they know where, uh, you know, they're economically where their bread is buttered. But oh, we still have a couple. Yeah, uh, why don't we go to that gentleman and then the lady here? Yes, sir. Uh,
0: so, to what degree do you perceive that you know this sense of Russian uh, of, of Ukraine being Russia? I mean, in the sense that, you know, it's the the Kievan roots that were the original Russians, yeah. right? I mean, Kiev was the third Rome. And it, so the early Russian identity really does emanate out of that region. That it's for them sort of like the Kosovo to the Serbs or you know, even East Prussia to German identity that this goes to the bone for Russians, and that's part of what drives this as well. And you think that that's, that's not what most Russians would even identify.
1: No, I think it's very important. There's a gigantic fight right now about a monastery in Kiev, the Kiev Picherskaya La- Lavra, which is, has catacombs. I don't know whether any of you have ever visited that. It's an ancient site in, in Kiev. And um, I think the, the problem is that they want to kind of, um, let's say, capture that part of the culture and say it's Russian. Whereas, the, you know, I mean, it's ridiculous to say Russia, Ukraine at that point, but it was Ukraine. We're going back, you know, to 900 AD. So um, I do think that this, there's a schizophrenia, I would call it a schizophrenia, of saying, yes, we know that's where Urus came from, but it happens to be Ukraine. So how do you, you know, put those two together? You say, Ukraine really isn't Ukraine. It's not really a country. It's just kind of was part of Rus, and it's ultimately Russian. I think you just say, it's ours, and they're lying about their culture. I do, I do think that that is going on. There's, if you Look at the New York Times. We were talking about this, too. New York Times front page, all of the artifacts and art museums that are being looted by the Russians right now. It is disgraceful. I mean, Kiev is such a cultured city, and they're taking, they're looting museums, the way the Nazis did to the Soviet Union. It's so ironic. But they are taking art, artifacts, Scythian gold, you name it, and taking them back to Russia and looting it. So there is, I would call it, it's, it's very close, and I think this is another subject, I think it's close to genocide, that you could make a case for a genocide um, for what's going on based on their definition you know of Ukrainians as not being people as not being a nationality a country and ma'am do you have a quick question I, I, yeah. I, the
2: question is not quick
1: enough <laughs> i'll um, try so my question has to do with the
2: media and your views as a journalist we're absolutely bombarded every day there's something in the news about the war. Um, but usually it has something to do with their, hum- there is either strategy, political, or human interest stories. And they keep digging for more horrible, horrible, horrible things. And yet there's a history of the American people being the public, being sort of, they become anesthetized to it, whether it's something happening in Syria or in the, you know, Africa or something, you know, and then after a while they just become immune to it. So, how do you maintain public interest? And the reason I ask this question is because I listen to all this news very carefully all the time, and yet you have brought some perspectives today that I thought were really, my compliments, thoughtful and interesting and made me think of some new angles. There's been one big article about the Russian Orthodox Patriarch, it was in the New York Times last year. Yeah. Why not more things like that?
1: You know, it's, it is hard because the war itself you know to cover a war like this is really tough very dangerous and very expensive you know every single person who goes into the field they have to have security they have to have war training i mean i've done it myself not under crazy circumstances like that but close so it's just to tell the story and so many so much of the fighting itself is an incredible story you know, are they going to win? Or are they going to lose? People being, you know, buildings being hit. And the old thing is, if you tell the story just kind of in uh, raw numbers or theoretically, people don't pay attention. But you tell a human story, like about one person, and they will identify. Now, I know that people can get inured to that and eventually just say, oh, you know, another story. But these are pretty amazing stories. I think... But, you know, Ukraine is a little bit different from some of the stories that we get. It's a very sophisticated country. You know, that is, it, 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 think of Kyiv. It's a big, bustling um, IT industry city. And the country is very sophisticated. So when when Americans look at that, I think sometimes, you know, they think, that could be me. You know, I that could be me. Look at that apartment. They have TVs and all the accoutrement that Americans have. And so I guess it's the only way the story can be told. I do think that we need to to, uh, talk more about the culture and the ideas. You know, these ideas that have been set loose are really dangerous. Mm -hmm. They're really dangerous. Because like, even I watch a lot of Russian TV. And the, the things that they're saying on Russian TV would shock you. I mean, really shock you. Like, these people ought to die. We ought to just wipe them out. They're like vermin. It's very much like the Nazis. And the things that they say about Americans were all debauched. I mean, I'm surprised you're in church. <laughs> I didn't know Americans were religious. You know. I mean, really, truly, they depict us as morally corrupt people. So when you have these, not just your enemy is an enemy, but your enemy is a monster, and, a, and Satan, we, you know, to say that they're fighting Satan, I think they, they have to dig into the bottom of the barrel to get that definition. It, it's, it's propaganda, propaganda and emotional propaganda to get people to fear and hate the other guy. It's very it can be very effective. But yeah, it's a good question. Russia. The rest of Europe like that, too? Are they more corrupt? <coughs> is England more corrupt? Oh, well, every, yeah, all, all, all of Europe Western? is corrupt. Don't all of Europe is corrupt as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. Um, We've got we... two minutes, so if there's a really quick
2: question a really quick answer. Yes. A war takes fighting. And so sanctions are having a big impact there. Why does Iran sell drones? They must be getting something in return.
1: Oh, yeah. If a mercenary army is not going to
2: fight they're not getting paid, Right. What is the promise of sanctions, I don't think you touched on this, to go deeper, to get them to the point where they just cannot continue anymore, and Russia must sue for peace?
1: Well, I mean, I think that is actually probably should be scenario number four. Yeah, you know, that they simply ran, run out of money, and they can't do it anymore. Because, you know, their economy has actually been stabilized, surprisingly, but they are running out of weapons. That's why they're turning to other people they're running out of uh, uh, technological uh, components for their weapons, and I think that could be a very likely scenario, that they simply can't, they don't have enough weaponry to do it. Look at the missiles that they're using. They are using missiles that should never be used in the circumstances that they're being used, but they have nothing left. So maybe that would be the best scenario. They run out of money and weapons.
0: Everyone, please join me in thanking.